Chapter Six of On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck by Robert Pitcher Woodward. Chapter Six Mac Held for Ransom. Christmas Day is a merry day for all good lads and lassies, but dull and lorn for the fellow born to ride or drive jackasses. Old Song Yuletide afforded me few pleasures. How I was to bridge the gulf of penury and want of the holiday season caused me much concern. Lacking the funds to pay my hotel and stable bills, I canvassed the town and sold a few pictures before church time. I wished to attend Christmas service, but lacked the nerve. My grotesque attire might have inspired the preacher. I had worn holes in all my socks, and not having the price of a new pair, retired to my room to darn them. It was the first darning of that sort I ever did. When I had finished, I darned my luck, the hard times, and many things not down on the calendar. I pictured to my mind's eye the pleasures of Christmas tide, of which I had cheated myself, but it was no time to brood over might-have-beens. I would start for the next town that morning. I felt a constant anxiety for Mac Aroni's safety, and shouldn't feel easy until we were out of the college district. We reached Amsterdam in time for Christmas dinner. I will not give the bill a fare. It wouldn't whet your appetite. The following day was almost as dull as Christmas. In the morning I was fortunate enough to receive in advance two dollars for distributing calendars to the farmers on my way to the next town, and employed the afternoon repairing saddlebags. The snow lay deep, the weather was windy and chill, and my donkey slower than axle-grease so I tarried overnight and heard Sabbath bells. Sunday evening saw us comfortably quartered in the little village of Fonda, a few miles' journey. While supping, I learned that a German newspaper reporter, who claimed to be walking across the continent on a $750 wager, was a guest at another hotel. He came into town shortly after dark, and, unable to pay for a bed, was permitted to sleep on a bench, where my informant saw him. By the terms of his bet, the fellow was not allowed to beg, but could accept the earth if offered him. My sympathies were aroused, and I called on him after supper. He told his story, showed me papers, and a book signed by the railroad station agents on his route, for he had hit the ties all the way, and expressed much anxiety about covering the remaining 184 miles to New York in six days. The young man looked emaciated. His shoes were literally worn out. His one meal that day had been a cup of coffee and a roll. He hadn't slept in a bed since leaving Detroit, where he earned his last money, five dollars. Pod's tender heart was touched. Although the more affluent donkey traveler possessed but a dollar and sixty cents, he gave his brother Globetrotter a dollar, a hot supper in bed, and would have paid for a stimulating drink had not the hotel keeper been inspired to treat the two.
Next morning some commercial travelers, having learned of Pod's generosity, purchased a pair of shoes for the pedestrian. The delighted fellow departed at an early hour, expressing his sanguine belief that he would win his wager. I had to hustle that morning to settle accounts, and it was eleven o'clock before Mac and I departed. I had only a nickel in pocket. That day we both went without lunch. It was long after dark and past supper time when we arrived in Fort Plain, and a half hour later before we reached the hotel. The town was illuminated with electric arc lights, which always throw vivid shadows, and Mac Aroni had a desperate encounter with another donkey in the snow. He reared and pitched and cavorted and bolted. He wound me up in the reins and then bunked into me. I was in his way all the time, and finally rushed down a side street, dragging me after him. I had to leave the rampant animal through several unlighted streets round the village to get him to the stable. It was the first time I had presented myself at a strange hotel without my asinine credentials. When I registered, the incredulous proprietor went to the barn for Mac's own statement before believing me the famous man I claimed to be. That evening a committee from the Bohemian Club invited me to a concert given under the auspices of the Fort Plain Band. I went and enjoyed it. At its conclusion I was asked to talk to a phonograph, the invention of the president of the club. Having once addressed an audience of chairs, I could not object to talk to a funnel. I addressed the emptiness thereof with all the eloquence I could muster, then listened while the phonograph tried to repeat my words. It was simply awful. Had the machine been togged out in nightshirt, mask, and lighted candle, and shot off such a lingo in a dark alley, I should have thought it my own spook and fled in terror. When I reached Little Falls, my stock of photos was exhausted, and, but for a stroke of good luck, I fear I could not have paid my bills. Mac Aroni agreed to carry a sign extolling the virtues of a one-price clothier, and that brought us a few dollars, which we divided. It was late when we started for Herkimer, a town twelve miles away. The mud greatly impeded our progress, and suddenly, just before dark, when five miles to town, we came to a long-covered wooden bridge. Then there was trouble. Mac obstinately refused to enter the dark tunnel. I coaxed him with an apple to follow me. I prodded him. I turned him about and tried to back him through, but he would not budge. I went behind and pushed him, and vexed beyond reason I finally whipped him, all without avail. What could I do? I sat down and thought. No sound of an approaching vehicle greeted my ear, but I saw a house down the road. I decided to hitch my obdurate beast to the fence and seek assistance. As I approached the house, the seductive aroma of frying steak told me it was supper hour. In response to my knock, a rural-looking man came out and eyed me curiously while chewing vigorously. Indoors I could hear somebody drinking out of a saucer. "'Excuse me for interrupting,' I said politely, "'but my jackass—' "'Your what?' "'My jackass. I am bound for California with one, and am stuck out here by the bridge. 
I came to ask your assistance. The man swallowed. In a hole, eh? Well, I reckon you've come to the right place for help. No, I'm not in a hole exactly. That's just the trouble. My animal abhors holes. He refuses to enter the covered bridge. Well, I swan. Can't you lick him through? The farmer asked. As impossible, said I, as to lick a camel through the eye of a needle. I want to know. Come in, he said, and turning to the hired man added, John, let's give the fellow a lift. The men donned wraps and boots, and with an old wheelbarrow followed me down the slushy road to the beastly eyesore of my existence. To describe our efforts to get that donkey through the bridge would tire you as much as those efforts tired me. Max squirmed and kicked and bit. He would not be carried by hand, so the wheelbarrow was employed. He was too large for the vehicle and lapped over the edges. We consumed a half hour in the gigantic task of wheeling Mac across that bridge. By gum, young feller, exclaimed the exhausted farmer, as he dropped the heavy live weight. Do your haster go through this kind of business every bridge you come to? I explained that I usually met with difficulties at bridges, but had never encountered a covered one before. Then I thanked the good Samaritans for their kindness and prodded Mac to town. We arrived in Herkimer late. Directly after supper I canvassed the stores and worked till ten o'clock selling pictures. We seemed to create quite a sensation. When about to retire I learned that my donkey was stolen. I was told local bandits held him for ransom. I was greatly provoked and rushed about the streets making inquiries until at length a street loafer whispered that he would tell me where my animal was if I would blow him to a drink. I agreed. Then the man in the know piloted me to a bar room several blocks away where I was astonished to find the captive drinking with several other jackasses. He was the only one not disconcerted by my appearance, and even had the audacity to stick his nose up at the barkeeper and bray. I engaged men to assist me convey the inebriate to the stable as quickly as possible, and ordered an extra padlock to be snapped on the door. Next morning I found my partner in a surprisingly sober condition. Resuming my pilgrimage, I made brief stops at Ilion and Frankfurt, and arrived in Utica shortly after dark on the last day of the leap year. The hotel corridors swarmed with inquisitive guests who had been apprised of my coming. The jovial proprietor gave us a hearty welcome, and ordering several porters to lead Mac into the office, called loudly to the amusement of all, Front! Give the donkeys the best double room in the house. Slow traveling for a leap year, I remarked to the clerk. Oh, that reminds me, Mr. Pod, said he. Here's a letter for you. Just came a few minutes ago. I settled my weary frame in a rocker and read it. It was actually an invitation to a leap year ball given under the auspices of the society girls of Manicure Hall. The card was printed but on its margin were inscribed in a purely feminine hand a few choice words urging me to come in my traveling habit. It struck me that it might be my only chance to get engaged for eight long years, 
so I washed and brushed and polished and turned up at the ballroom at a late but nevertheless fashionable hour. The ball was the most brilliant function it had been my pleasure to attend since the days of my freedom. Caesar, what charming girls! Were they really charming, or was it because I had been a recluse so long that most anybody wearing dresses fascinated my starved optics? Before advancing a rod into the hall, I received a proposal. Within an hour I had a dozen. The dance, the supper, the defective lights, and the kisses in the dark, the midnight alarm, and the New Year's bells all fulfilled their offices delightfully in turn, all except for the leave-taking of the old year, which groaned over the effects of bad salad and gave up the ghost. I devoted the afternoon to a delightful nap. I was worn out. Saturday I called upon the genial mayor, who paid me liberally for a photo and subscribed to my donkey book. Sunday I set out with Mac for Rome. I was told all the roads were in bad condition, and was advised to take the towpath of the Erie Canal. After two hours of tramping and groping in the darkness, we came to a suburban street, and shortly after I was directed to a tavern and quartered myself for the night. A number of commercial men had prophesied I would not make my expenses in Rome, but I did. It was an all-day job, however, and another night was fairly upon me before I started for Oneida, sixteen miles away. We had not gone far when we came to an old-fashioned toll-gate, where I expected to be made to contribute to the county's good road fund. I felt loath to do so for nowhere else on my journey had we found the highway in such a disreputable condition. I told Mac to keep his mouth shut, and we stealthily walked through the gate, hoping not to be observed. But no sooner done than the keeper issued from his shanty and welcomed me back. He wished to talk with me, he said. His boy had preceded me from town and given his father glowing accounts of the donkey traveler. So interested were the toll-keeper and his family in the welfare of Pod and Mac that they not only waived the toll, but gave us a pressing invitation to remain with them overnight. The generosity of that man's big honest heart stood out in such happy contrast with the miserly county administration and my own penury that I gratified the man's desire, in a measure, and hitching Mac Aroni, followed my host into his dwelling where I allowed myself to share his frugal board. It was certainly such a home where either a Don Quixote or a Pythagoras Pod might feel himself a distinguished guest. The wife brewed tea and spread the table with black bread and doubtfully wholesome cakes, while the children climbed on my knees and heard with raptures my tales of adventure. When it was time to go, the keeper, having learned from his son that I sold the pictures to live on, begged me with tears to accept a quarter for the one I gave him, saying that he had a fair-sized garden besides the pittance he received for performing the duties of his humble office, whereas I had to depend on Providence for the keeping of myself and comrade on our long trip round the world. So Mac and I, thanking the good people for their kindnesses, 
for Mac's ever-acute appetite had not been overlooked by the thoughtful hostess, strode on in mud and darkness, slipping, spattering, and mumbling unintelligible and impolite words, and hoping against hope soon to arrive at some comfortable haven of rest. A mile beyond we were greeted with loud applause issuing from a huge building to our left, which I took to be a girl's seminary, but which Mac insisted was a slaughterhouse. To be distinguished in the dark and tendered such an ovation quite tickled my vanity, but my less conceited partner only brayed and trembled in the fear of being chased by a mad pig with its throat cut. When we had passed to a safe distance, I met a farmer in a wagon and asked him the name of the illuminated building. "'The Rome State Insane Asylum,' said the man. At length a dense mist gathered, and then it began to sprinkle. I could scarcely distinguish Mac in the darkness. The road was tortuous, one vast river bed of mud, as untenable as quicksand. We first ran against a barbed-wire fence on one side and a rail fence on the other, and finally I plunged over boot-tops in a sluice and might have drowned had I not held the reins and been pulled out by my unintentionally heroic comrade. My boots were new and didn't leak, and the mud and water remained in them. If ever there was a moment on that overland voyage when I felt in prime condition to give it up, it was there and then. Still, we struggled onward, and a few hundred yards ahead I discovered the faint light of a farmhouse, where I stopped to ask the distance to the next place we could secure shelter. "'About four mile, I should judge,' said the farmer. I guessed as much, but it gave me a chance to sigh. "'Mercy, none nearer?' Just then Mac coughed and approached. "'Nope, but wait!' Be you the gentleman bound for Frisco with a mule? Verily so, I returned, while my partner brayed indignantly at being called a mule. Well, what's it worth to take you both in for the night and feed you? the man asked avariciously. Oh, about seventy-five cents? Come back, said he. I just walked from the railroad station a mile and a half in the mud, and lost my overshoes, and can sympathize with you. My donkey was comfortably stabled, watered and fed, and I ushered into a cozy room, where my host brought me dry garments and slippers, and gave me a hot supper. Truly, I thought, the darkest hour is just before dawn. End of chapter 6 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina